0: Welcome to this week's episode of Handcut Radio. I'm Alex Svetkovic, a men's style writer and a content consultant, and I'm joined this week by dynamic duo Robert and Sam Emmett, the father and son team that together head up Emmett London, a modern British shirt maker with shops on the King's Road and German Street. We talk about Robert's journey from Australia to opening his first shop on the King's Road, the challenges of growing a small family business, how consumers taste change in difficult climates and how Emmett has stayed its course for over 25 years. Here we go. Well, Robert, Sam, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. First series, season one of Handcut Radio. Um, it's, it's been a long time since we had a chance to sit down and chat, Robert, so I've been really looking
1: forward to this. As, as have I, as am I. No, it has been a long time. As we mentioned just earlier, probably two or three years. Yeah. You had a different role, you had, you had a different uniform on back in those days. I didn't, I just. <laughs> uh,
0: it's so funny that you're alluding to that, because that keeps coming up in this podcast. For, for context, Sam, I used to wander around in pin collar shirts mm-hmm. and very bold stripes and three-piece suits with double breasted waistcoats and lapels up around my ears. Uh, that has, that has, has, has matured somewhat as yes. of my, my menswear journey has continued.
1: Well, you're slightly older, I'm
0: a lot older, and yep. probably only a little wiser. I would you, I'm sure you're infinitely wiser <laughs> This is something we're about to discover was um, yeah, good, good, good that you asked me and it's good to be here Good, well thank you um, I, I, it, I've been so looking forward to this uh, We're sat here in your new made-to-measure showroom above the German Street Store and we've just spent 15 minutes in the German Street Store downstairs and there's a great atmosphere Gu- Guys have been running in and out There are many, many bags filled with beautiful shirts which is great to see being collected and Bits and bobs tried on, um, but I guess it's been a long, old road to get to this point. Indeed. Um, mm-hmm. wh- wh- why don't we, we start at the beginning, Robert? You, you are Australian by birth. Yes. What drew you to our great glorious
1: capital city? Uh, well, my, tr- my parents, when I was young, travelled all over the world for, for my father's job. Mm-hmm. He's not in fashion at all. He's a doctor, but then worked in pharmaceutical companies. So that took him, hence us being younger, or in, lived in many different places. And then towards the end of my schooling, I was at school in Lancashire, Northern England, which is where I did back then. They were called O-levels, GCSEs today, and then yeah. finally A-levels. And then as a young 18-year-old, so we're always going back to the beginning, but not quite. Mm. As an 18-year-old, we never know what the hell we want to do, and neither did I back then. So I went back to Switzerland where my parents were there, where my parents were living, sorry. And then I got into catering. I was at the, I was at the famous École Hôtelière de Lausanne, so the hotel school in Lausanne where I did six months of classical French cooking. Brilliant. And then I decided that that went on for many more years, that that was not, for me, um, the hospitality hotel world. I guess that's so relentless. I was looking at little tailors <laughs> while I was there that were living in Lausanne. And this is going back 30 years now. Now, there were lots more tailors all over Europe, scattered all over Europe. And, then, and, and in, in southern the French-speaking part of Switzerland, there were quite a few. Most of those, as you can imagine, have since gone. Mm. I convinced one in Geneva to give me an apprenticeship for two and a half years where I learned tailoring. That's how I got into my world from cooking. So, that's, this is when I'm 18, 19, 20,
0: 21. So, you're a tailor before a shirt maker? Tailor before a shirt maker. Right so, I learned there. trousers,
1: jackets, sit, everything. And this is literally made by hand because they didn't have machines at this particular place. Yeah. Um, going back 10 years earlier, 8 years earlier, when I was 14 in Sydney, um, I wanted to make shirts. I didn't know why. My mother had a sewing machine. She wasn't using it. I took apart one of dad's shirts. And it's only when you take apart that you actually see the construction of something. Then I got some paper, as you know, wrapping up paper, put them on some paper, made the patterns, and decided to create my own shirts. Brilliant. That's how it started when I was 14 years old.
0: And you've got your hands on some cotton and some cotton linings. Well,
1: even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there were even shops where you could go and buy because they were selling rolls of material. So the, there were a lot more home makers of clothing back then than there are now. So people had sewing machines and there were shops where you could buy material. That has all since gone. Right. There, you know, I know only Peter Jones now and probably Sloan Square that sells rolled up material. Mm. But it's probably more for curtains rather than clothing. Yeah, suiting. And... So that's how I started. So 14 for a couple of years, made my own shirt. So originally a shirt maker, did A levels, A levels. I was a scientist, I did chemistry, maths physics um, at A level then 18 years old, not knowing what to do, ended up in Switzerland and then got into tailoring.
0: So you're in Switzerland, you're coat making, cutting, trouser making, you're learning that trade. How do we get to a shirt shop in the King's Road? <laughs> What's the connection? Well, my
1: first shop, so the tailoring just helped me fine, fine tune my method of sewing. So I was always a shirt, I always loved shirts. I never actually ended up being a tailor at all. But it helped me see how to make things properly and really well. And that was the, the great thing about it. So then I, I went, my wife is Swiss from Zurich. That's how I ended up living in Switzerland for 12 years. Right. Uh, we lived in Zurich. Underneath where we lived, uh, it was an old house just on the outskirts of Zurich. And underneath it was, it was an old chauffeur's house of a very large house next door. There was a huge room the size of these two here or twice the size of the German street shop where I had my first shop, shirt shop. That's how I started. Ah. And I had that for a year. And then we decided, well, we can either stay in Zurich or go and see something quite different, go and live in London. We'd never, ever lived in London before. I mean, I knew no one in London. So my wife and I, up sticks, left Zurich, got in the back of our little van, drove to London with the few shirts we had. I borrowed some money off dear old dad, paid him back five years later, opened a shop on the King's Road.
0: I- I'm amazed by that what, what was the impulse behind we don't know London we've not been to the city what, let's, what just a change of scene or
1: just a change of scene well London was always a huge and a lot bigger capital than Zurich Zurich's a funny little place it's a, it's a small big town at the same time hmm. but London compared to any other city in Europe is is the biggest it's like the New York of Europe that was the beauty of London and the King's Road back in those days the early 90s was, was thriving it's changed slightly but today um, we just thought it was a better opportunity, a better, a better way to expand, a better way to grow there than, a, than in a smaller, hidden little city like, like Zurich. Oh, that's brilliant. I love the impulse
0: behind that. I love that kind of freedom of thought to just go, yeah, yeah, work, let's upstitch, chuck it all on the back of a van and we'll sell shirts there instead. I mean, that's true. risk.
1: I mean, all, all I had going for me was the fact that I could speak Aussie
0: English. Were, were you, <laughs> how did you feel at that time? Were you nervous? Were you terrified? Oh, yeah, were very, you,
1: well, you're nervous in the sense that you don't, I mean, I didn't know anything about London. And I knew no one. We had no friends at all in London because I'd lived for the last 12 years in Switzerland and then before that other places. So we came to a city, a huge city, not knowing where the good shopping areas were, not knowing uh, what street connected to what street. It's not New York where it's on a grid. London is spaghetti junction of roads. So trying to figure all this out back then in your, in your mid-twenties was quite daunting. And then trying to find a property where would it be best to open a shop with the minimal amount of finances you had. So we chose the world's end of King's Road. Well, I was going to say,
0: because presumably you moved to London without even a shop, and then the first mission is,
1: let's get a shop so we can earn a living. Let's, yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> let's get a shop and see if people like what I do. Great. So back then, the shirts were wacky and designery and very different. Very colourful. Okay. Well, right.
0: I guess that's quite... that's. Was it 91 you opened? My God, 92. 92. That's, that's, that's kind of the early 90s vibe, isn't it? It's super super brassy and bold and
1: super brassy and bowl but there was also another problem with the early 90s that with this country was in the last deep dark recession mm. so it started from 89 to about 94 so that was also quite risky and daunting for us to open in what was the worst recession before this one started in 2008 so that was also that also took or made it longer to actually grow up as well become something different yeah i think what did it for us was an article that aa gill a famous writer for restaurants yeah. was an old client bless him us. Uh, came in and he said, "Well, you you are making the only colourful shirts in London. These are great," and, and so he he wrote quite a bit about us, which which also helped. And so we brought colour into what was a deep dark recession. Brilliant.
0: I, that, that's that's such a great little anecdote. I have so much respect for <laughs> A. A. Gill. He's sort of one of the, the last great journalists that can actually you know sort of drive footfall into a shop. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> um, okay, so that that means we've sped through to the to the early nineties. Um, obviously the, the Emmet of today is a very different beast. Your sons, including Sam here, now work in the business. Um, how, what has this journey been like for you and for your family? You know, what, what, what were the kind of milestones for you? How have you grown the business over the last approaching 20 years, I guess?
1: Well, uh, slowly, organically, I'd say, um, I, I have grown it. So from from the early beginnings, the tough early beginnings. Although when you're in your early twenties, and sorry, late twenties, early thirties, you don't really think about things like that. You you just get on with it. You do the job, and you you do what you do best. And that's probably what has saved me. Just keep always doing what you do best. Never never sacrifice any quality. I'll come back to that later. Cool. You just really once you open that shop, you're there. You keep the designs in your head. You make sure you bring up very high quality goods. the the prices were different back in those days and you just build it up slowly I never had a flair for PR I never had a flair for business I just liked what I did making shirts finding great material makers and putting them together with great shirt makers I would back in those days make the shirts myself or the original ones, make the patterns and then give those to the various shirt makers we had making them for us that's all changed, I don't do that anymore Um, the people I work with and have worked with most of them for over 20 years now they very cleverly do all of that for me and they're a lot better at doing it. <laughs> but it's a learning process. But it's a learning right? process. Brilliant. I, so I've stayed small probably because I'm not the smartest businessman on the planet but I love making shirts. Otherwise I'd probably have 20 shops scattered all over the world and <laughs> drive a car that I can't afford today. Well, uh, th-
0: thankfully that's not what it's all about, is it? Yeah. And yeah. I guess the, the other element here is that Emmet is a family business in the truest sense of the word and that yes. you... you, know, you, you Came to London with your wife, and you opened it with your wife, and now all your sons work in the business. Yes. Um, all three of us, <laughs> all three of you. Sam, what, to, what what is it? What is it like today to be involved in a family business? To see how it has grown? Presumably, you you know you you are. Growing up in London while your father is, is slaving away, yeah. making his shirts and, and building a business. Yeah,
2: well, yeah, I mean, whole life has been involved uh, somewhat, I guess. You know, I remember when I was about 12 taking photos downstairs for shirts to be uploaded onto the website, uh, things like that. So sort of always having a little hand in or helping clean up or putting away boxes. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's been yeah, really interesting. Um, the nice thing is you get to do a bit of everything when it's a small team and a small family business so every day different jobs different roles um you know i mean you might be helping out with stock management um organizing things emails things from online and then also a lot what i do is the made to measure yes um, which is great as well well the, the made to
0: measure is i think i'm right in saying a recent innovation the, the space that we're sat in currently is yeah. you, sort of your your made to measure shirting and tailoring room yeah, yeah. on german street when when did
1: this come about this is, this is only months old. Uh-huh. So this, this particular area we're sitting in today uh, is only four, four months old. Yeah. Last November we moved in here. Uh, we literally, it was an old charitable law firm before. It was a scruffy old office. <laughs> and we, we had to rip everything out and kept it quite minimalist, as you can see. And just adding bits of art and funny bits of uh, sculptures that we've collected over the years. That is an old uh, grain holder from South Africa.
0: That's absolutely fabulous. It is, I, just for, for, for the listeners' benefit, we are in this beautiful... I would encourage everyone to look it up, actually. In fact, I think we'll post some pictures on uh, the, the podcast's Instagram. You have this beautiful white space with high ceilings with fabulous tailoring and shirts in it, but there are some very interesting curiosities here, um, including a, a sort of a seven-foot-high... A seven what I now know to be a grain store <laughs> um, it looks like an obelisk it's brilliant um, but actually I think that, that that's quite a nice lead into taste and the taste of, of Emmett as a business you are known I guess for the creativity that underpins your shirts and the confidence of a lot of your designs um, where, where does this kind of passion for, for kind of art come from because it is one of your passions I think I'm right in saying
1: I think it's living having lived in different places and now living in what I think is probably the greatest metropolis on the planet, this city, London. So here you are overwhelmed with art, not only 100 yards from this particular shop. You know, you have so many museums, even down to the quirky London Library, mm-hmm. uh, which p- people don't know about. I think there are two million books sitting on about eight floors, four underneath ground, four above ground, 100 yards from here. And in there, in, in that bastion of Englishness, there is there, there's all different kinds of art on the wall. So you are swamped with it. You are overwhelmed with it from a very short distance from here growing up your whole life having travelled to different parts of the world uh, seeing different cultures seeing the different way people do things seeing how they and their art um, you know, overwhelms you or uh, changes you I think is, is how you live just everything you do just walking around just listening to people uh, that, that helps you define who you are that gives you your style and the way you do things and, and how do you guys apply that to your designs today? Well, then, knowing all the different factories, and the sort of just the material companies alone, so the designs we do, most of them, because of how the world has changed, there were companies all over, the, all over Europe, let's say. But I would say now, in materials, it's mainly Italy, some in Switzerland, and some in places like Austria. Very few, very few left in France. So it's predominantly those two places where we source most of our material. So we go to them, they come to us, we look at some of their archives, we look at some of the things they're in, that they're developing at the moment. We use a mixture of all those things to make a collection, two collections a year, four if you like, if you include spring, summer, autumn. Um, that's what we do. So using the experience that you have, like everyone does, every great, all the other designers that we know and love, they will do the same thing. Experience tells them how they will push or, or, or create their next season's collection. I see. And so I guess a part of it is archive-led,
0: mixing it with your own influences then and the things you discover. Yes. Are, are there any particular moments, if we trace the kind of development of, of, of Emmet London back, where you, you had a kind of a lightbulb moment and you were struck by an artist or you were struck
1: by an exhibition you visited or one of your travels... Property was, as you mentioned earlier, when we started. So, roughly, 92, 93, 94, it was around then that people were still grumbling about the recession, these dark days. Will, they, will we ever get out of it? And I'm going to museums, seeing great painters, great colours, and I thought, this is it. It's time to bring colour in, that all these various artists have. You know, whether it's the famous ones like Picasso, or the Swiss one like Claire, or even Giacometri. So, I like the paintings behind you. You think, now's the time. Everyone's gloomy, uh, the weather in London's always gloomy, clearly. It's, mm-hmm. time, it's time to bring summers around the corner. It's time to bring colour back in. And that's, that's... So you think of that. Generally, in a recession, people play it safe. They don't have colourful checks, stripes, patterns. They generally play very safe and they go very sombre. And gen- as you can see, coming out of a recession, people get a bit more gregarious. So that was probably the light bulb back in the mid-90s to say it's time. That's so interesting. <laughs> Is
0: that is that something that you? I guess that is something, judging from the boldness of your designs, that you actively apply to your work today. It's almost like counteracting that grey British negativity that we all we all are determined to live by in well, London.
1: Well, we are, and is it the weather? It's quite phenomenal in this country because the weather is dark and gloomy. I mean, it isn't places like Amsterdam and France, and but, but here. We go the other way. So it's gloomy outside. So that's one, be humorous and funny. We love our humor in this country. If we can turn a joke on anything, even the end of commercials, there's generally a funny finish to it. Yeah. And then the other thing is wear some colorful kit. So whether it's colorful heavy tweeds uh, in the English countryside or a colorful gingham shirt underneath a green jacket, that's what we do best. Great.
0: Now, uh, let me bring that back round to your new made-to-measure offering. Sam, yeah. I guess you have... Uh, a different set of challenges uh, yeah. for what you do on behalf of Emmett. And in the, again, in the room next door, there are the most fabulously colourful corduroy separates uh, <laughs> that I absolutely love. I walked in a few minutes ago and went, oh my God, I love those. Uh, talk to me about how you work with clients, how you kind of get the Emmett look onto clients, and what are clients behaving and doing, doing today?
2: Well, I'd say, to be honest, having this space is very, very new for us, but We've always sort of wanted. We've always done made-to-measure shirts. Everyone always knows us for shirts. So finally, being able to get into a space like this, we can actually show the sort of more of the full look that we want to get uh, through to people. Um, I'd say it's 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 a slow process. Um, I mean, you come in again. Everything that we do <clears throat> is very soft tailoring. Um, a lot of it is handmade and sort of trying to educate the client and in why that's special and why that's great. Um, I think what we do is, is quite an Italian look, in terms of suiting. Is um, it is it
0: a Neapolitan workshop
1: that you use? I think I've yes, got yeah. that right. Yeah. Again, another small family operation uh, that we've been working with for a while, and we've always we, we've always worn what they do, and now we're just sort of trying to bring that to people. That always say, Rob, where can I get what you're wearing? Where can where, where can I get the trousers, Samuel, that you wear? Mm. Um, they're not a big company, but they do a great little job at what they do. And There aren't many of those companies left. They're either they're either large like the Brionis or they're very small family-run operations like like this one. So the tie out worked quite well. Um, yes, and it's really great <clears throat> to be able to show off all of that. Um, again,
2: we did offer it um, before we had this space, but impossible to, really well, really difficult to show clients because all we had was the shop floor. Yeah, we did have the basement um, of the shop as well for a little while, but again, sort of no natural light not that much space to show any of the things that we want to show. Uh, so, yeah, having this space really does make a difference. Well, I, I guess
0: there are a couple of little things to pull out there. Well, the first is that you've alluded to to kind of a mission to, to get clients to think of, of Emmett more as a kind of a full-look brand. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, what, what are the kind of challenges in doing that today? I guess that's quite challenging for a business that is known to be a shirt maker. How, do you, how are you moving that forward?
2: Um, Again, well, it comes down to marketing, I guess. Um, a lot of a lot more focus on social media, um, email campaigns, and, and online to sort of really try and get that image across that we do do all of the different aspects. Um, again, as I say, it is slow. People do know us for shirts, and they come in all the time for me to measure shirts. Um, so it is sort of yeah, trying to attack on those different avenues. Um, which yeah, which
1: is what we're doing. Now. Trying to tempt them to come up here, and here, as, as we say, it's a showroom, so we can show what it is that we like and the what what why we think you might like it as well. So they've trusted us for the shirts. We just think it is a, a small opportunity of showing them what what we might what you might want to wear as a jacket or a pair of trousers. Mm-hmm. Suiting is changing because people are becoming more smart casual, even at those old firms like law firms or banks. So we're aware of that as well. So people no longer have to wear a suit, but we do offer suits. I think it's. The difficult part is showing what you can do because we don't have a shop front for this. And unless you have a shop front, then you have to market in the sense bring people up here and show look we can do this for you as well. Yeah. And as they trust us for the shirts, then hopefully they might want to you know wear one of our jackets or trousers. Uh, well, but I it think does take time. It,
0: yes, of course. I think they're brilliant. I, I was really really smitten with them when I walked in. I think the colours and the, the textures going on are brilliant. Yeah. Um, and I guess that that leads me into my next sort of thought for you, which is there is a freshness about Emmett as a brand, which one does not necessarily see with other German street shirt makers. Um, is it intentional? Has it evolved over the years? Do you think of yourselves as fresh or is that a horrible
1: word? Or No, I think, I think um, like a good cook, you know, you always got to work with great ingredients. And then a good cook has the experience of using great people to help you make them. That's what I think we try and do. So keep that freshness in the sense, you're right. I mean, prints can do that for us today. Having some lively prints, especially in summer, liven up a collection. Not always have dark colours. Take a risk on colour. You know, most shirt makers will always sell, and we sell a lot of them as well, whites, light blues, and a blue stripe. Whereas we bring in lots of other variables to that shirt. I think it makes it a lot more fun. Yeah. You look out the window and it's gloomy. You know, bring fun to everything. Yeah. Do you think. Um, what has kept us going, I think, is number one, always make sure the quality is, is at the highest levels. Right. What has kept us going through, throughout 25 years, never relinquish, never give up on that, and you'll stay f- true to yourself. So we're talking
0: quality, but we're also talking a sense of fun. Yes. Do you think that British men are good at, at having fun with their clothes? Slightly leading question, because I've got some, some, some quite clear
1: thoughts on this. <laughs> uh, well, no. I mean, you know, it, it's, a, it's a big country, and London's a very big city, so you'll find everything. That's the beauty of London. So you'll find some very well-dressed men, and you'll find some very dapper, very colourful, well, well-dressed men. Whether, whether you find people that dress the way you like them is a different thing. Does someone have good or bad taste? Generally, someone has bad taste because you don't like it. <laughs> right. But, but they like it. So that's the variable of London, I think, is that you have everything. Generally, as a sense, I find, although even that has changed, you go to Italy and you think, wow, everyone dresses very well. They're generally the colours that are fashionable. Italians like colours and they all wear the same colour when a particular colour is fashionable, Whether whether it's a shirt, whether it's a jacket, or whether it's a big Rolex watch. They will generally wear the similar thing. But you can sense that these guys seem to know how to dress well. Whereas we are because London is, is big it, you, you see everything here so there's no general sense that this is what's happening at the moment there's everything interesting
0: now I've got I've got a few thoughts to roll into um, but the the first is actually you know we have two generations of family business sat here and we have two very different looks yes. uh, both of which are compelling in different ways <laughs> Robert you look every bit the proprietor You have your handsome you, Navy, Navy fresco blazer on And a lovely blue uh, gingham check shirt Sam your look is uh, As you would imagine younger We have a sweater we have a denim shirt with a collar popped We have uh, some cool, cool uh, High waisted uh, Tailored trousers on um, Sam, where do you find? What, what are the kind of? What's the look that you, you personally identify with? How do you apply your own sense of personal style to Emmet? Have, have you learned from your dad? Have you learned from kind of pop movements or cultural movements? Where, where do you look to for a yeah, sense yeah, of I'd style? Yeah, it's
2: a lot, a lot from dad, but also you know, sort of I guess the friendship group I associate with, uh, <laughs> a lot of young artists and things like that. Um, so again, colourful and. Everything a little bit, a little bit more extreme, maybe. So things like you know, doing big turn-ups or having a high-waisted trouser or like more pleats than necessary. Um, <laughs> it's always the best way. <laughs> um, and then also like that slight element of, I guess, a bit scruffy um, to an extent. I, we t- I don't think we should say scruffy. Should we? we should say some, I don't know, dégagé or something, or edulis. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, no. I guess yeah. I guess all sorts. As, as Rob saying, you sort of take influence from. From um, many different avenues,
0: but but I guess that interest in art then is is still, still is still uh, running yeah. in the family. and still yeah, yeah, there. Definitely.
2: Again, older brother's an artist as well, oh. uh, so um, again we we always spend time together. He's got a little studio as well, so always hanging out in there. Um, yeah.
1: So yeah, definitely the art thing. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Well, um, let, let I we... think Sam has also because there are lots of young street brands at the moment, out and about. So, and as Sam's clearly a lot younger, you know, being in front of all those, seeing all of those, whether it's the Supreme, you know, a skateboard brand, or whether it's another young brand, it's it's looking at all those variables in the fashion market, and then coming from a sort of suit and jacket company, um, mixing those two together, whether it's wearing a beanie hat, or, or shoes with a very pleated pair of, tra- oh, sorry, running shoes with a very pleated pair of trousers. Mm. That's a young influence that clearly I've gone from, <laughs> but but, but Tam is in the middle of brilliant um let's I want to
0: keep sort of um Touching on this interest in art because it's fascinating. Um, obviously, it's had, it, it, it runs in the family. It has a huge. It's had a huge impact on him over the years. Can can we talk a little bit about I think some of your your earlier days, Robert, when you were you know you focused on the Kings Road shop. My my spies tell me you are a member
1: of the Chelsea Arts Club. Correct. Uh, <laughs> and um, I was there last night with an old, old fashioned friend of mine who was uh, Michael Drakes. Marvelous. So um, we catch up once in a while for some cheap red wine at the Chelsea Arts Club, and he brings a big cigar. Jolly good. <laughs> that sounds dreamy. Um, is uh, is it
0: fair to say that Michael is one of the men that's kind of helped you on your way professionally as, as a sort of a, a British kind of tastemaker and a yes, manufacturer? Well, no,
1: definitely. Michael and I go back uh, since I arrived in London. Um, I've known him for that for that length of time, and just to sit down and chat over those years about all different kinds of things in the industry. Uh, is is always a help chatting to anyone that you think is inspiring and has created themselves what I would say is is a great business a great collection has a great set of ideas and he's certainly one of them
0: right and and talk, talk, let's let's just roll back the clock a little bit then because I'm I'm enjoying sort of this this picture of the first few years of Emmett who who were the kind of heroes or supporters of the brand early on that that kind of helped you to get through who have you learned
1: from over the years well a lot of the uh, mainly european companies that i that i would have visited um there were in cities like milan or paris like arnie's in paris i don't know whether you know that shop it was a classical old Mensch shop which has now sort bon of Horsche. been been uh, incorporated into belusi is that right scooped up by him yeah well the property at least uh, he did use some of their ideas in the beginning, Belluti, uh, but a great, quirky, old French company. So people like that. Or there was a great shop in Milan. It was like an old sports shop, a bit like Purdy's, mm. so, but on four or five levels. And in there was a warren of all different kinds of ideas and fashion. Uh, but they didn't think of that. They just thought it, it was, you know, a, a rifleman would come in to buy a jacket or a fisherman might come in to buy a pair of trousers. So they were just selling sports kit to sporting people, but itself was a great little hive of ideas that were fashionable, that were great. All of these companies have gone, um, which which is the same, it's a shame, a huge shame, I think. You know, a lot of the great roads of the world now are full of the same shops, yeah, because those are the only people that can afford the rents on these great roads, yeah. So whether you go to London, Paris, Milan, Shanghai, I'm so you, you see like I see is is the shame or plethora of, of, of big branded businesses, uh. Those businesses are not bad, it's just that they're the same everywhere. So these little quirky shops that I was influenced in the early days, most of them have all gone. There's one left in Rome, um, it's called Albertelli, it's a tiny little maker behind the Houses of Parliament uh, who, who does something different, does something quirky. Um, but most of the ones I used to love have
0: gone. That's a shame, isn't it? You, you, you earlier in our conversation attributed uh, a part of, of um, Emmett's longevity to quality and the pursuit of quality. Is it, do you have any thoughts on, on quality where, in mainstream fashion today? You know, are you, I sometimes look at, at some of the products that, that big designer behemoths are producing, and some of it's fabulous, and some of it I find quite concerning, actually. I don't know if that's fair, um, or if that's my own bias. Do you have any thoughts on quality uh, in the in industry? That is definitely
1: fair, that, that, that particular criticism. We'll, let's not pick on anyone in particular, no. but no, you're right. Some big brands will use their big brands... Uh, to buy very cheap materials and make them very cheap places and sell them extortionate amounts because they have probably financiers behind them that want margin, margin, margin. Yeah. So they sacrifice quality uh, for the, for just for profit.
0: Well, you know, I think it's interesting you, you say that. I think one of the saddest things that I experience in menswear today is looking at a, a big brand shop window and thinking, my God, that's all fabulous. But the best it's going to look is in that window. And the second you put it on the body or you get up close to it, you know, and I, I spend, I am lucky that as a journalist, I have spent a lot of my time dealing with artisans and craftspeople. And, you know, you can go, you can look at some designer stuff up close nowadays and go, feels flimsy, I can tell it's fused. I can tell it's plasticky. I can tell that's cheap cloth. Yeah. And
1: it doesn't stand up. I think it's a shame. Yes. Um, so, which puts us in an odd position because people either have the money to buy four shirts for £100 or there's a very select small set of people 0001 percent of the world that can buy shirts at £450 from a very big designer brand we're in the middle, sort of higher in the middle so quality I think is paramount to what we do, however it also comes with a price, you know we don't sell four shirts for £100, we are around £150, we fully realise not everyone can afford that not everyone has £150 in their wallet. Um, but if you do, you will get something that I consider to be very much worth that price. Yeah, And that's very few people left that do that, I find.
0: Mm. And there's, there's, there's again, a, a kind of a directness and an honesty about that, I yeah. guess, that's so important to preserve. Yes. Um, could I... where should we go next? I, actually, one thing that I did want to touch on that I think we're, we're, we're sort of nudging at is, you know, the, the company is now, I believe, 27 years old. Uh, obviously, any independent brand d- does not en- enjoy plain sailing for that entire period of time. Talk to me about some of the kind of challenges you've experienced over the years and how you've negotiated some some more sort of troubling periods in, in Emmett London's history.
1: Well, there's only one troubling period we have. We, we've grown at 10% a year for the last 25 years. There's a few, few quiet years in the beginning because of the recession I mentioned earlier, yep. 92 to 94 and then we, I decided to go on a little expansion roll because in this city, everyone's on your back. Why aren't you bigger? Why don't you open here? Why don't you open there? So you, you take in some of that advice and you think, okay, let me open two or three places. We opened in Canary Wharf. and That was a disaster. Oh. Very quickly learned that that was the wrong place to be. If you're in food and you sell something very tasty, open up and open up a lot of them down there because <laughs> there's a lot of people and you'll do very well. But if you're in expensive shirtings or what I consider middle to expensive shirtings or clothes or shoes, no. I'd say stay to the West End. Although London is a huge city and it looks like the potential is massive, it's actually not.
0: Right. So, how did you negotiate that? You were, you were in Canary Wharf for a period of time and then you just had to, you yeah. just went, I've got to cut my losses here.
1: Yes, you nailed it on the head, exactly. So, you just realised, you know, with, with some things, like, like many businesses do, you know, they, they may have six or seven shops and they decide to open a place and you might find that the place around the corner was actually better. So, you decide, okay, let's pull the plug on that one and open around the corner. So that's basically what we saw. We said, look, we made a mistake. We all made mistakes. Canary Wharf's not ideal for us. Cut our losses, get out as fast as we can, and concentrate on something else. Interesting.
0: What, what, what is your instinct as to why that, that, it just didn't work for you there? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I think uh, generally the impression I got was people at Canary Wharf and the city, if they wanted something good, fine, expensive, well-made, they'd prefer to come to the West End, where there are more of an ilk like us rather than just go downstairs around the corner. They said, let's make a a little effort and go to where we know there are people that make things that we might actually really like. It's probably not possible that they're downstairs. That's the impression I got.
0: That's interesting. And I guess that alludes to... uh, something that, that seems to be big in luxury retail at the moment, which is that the, the affluent consumers are looking for something experiential. Yes. That's probably why the made to measure business is looking so good.
1: Yeah,
0: definitely. Um, and why guys are prepared to travel to have a nice day on a Saturday shopping on German yes. Street.
1: Yes. Because you can buy your bread and butter, i.e., shirt, white shirt for work, online. So, which means it's delivered to your desk. In, in a bag right next to where you're sitting. Whereas, as you say, you, you want to make an effort. You want to have breakfast, take the missus, uh, go and have a walk around town. She can try her shows on. You can wear, buy a shirt. That all happens as an experience. That's why it's changing. Because everything else is delivered to you. Yeah. But on that note, what, how, how have you
0: found negotiating the weird and wonderful world of, of e-commerce? How is that for
1: you? Uh, well... We, we, do, we, we, do, we do have a website. We do so. The great thing with e commerce is, you know, people are buying in Hong Kong while you're sleeping. So that's the advantage of it. But e commerce is, unlike being on German Street, having a shop that no one knows about is a bit like opening a shop in a garage and tooting. You have to shout to the world that you're there. So rather than being on a, on a prime time shopping area like, like this street, you have to spend probably an equal amount of money shouting to the world what you do online. Yeah. So it has its costs as well. Definitely, it's not as easy as people think.
0: Mm. So something that actually has, has come up earlier in this series is, is is the difficulty of gaining any organic reach today, yes. at all. I don't know if that's something that you guys have experienced.
1: Uh, well, I think again, like when I opened my shop on on German Street back in those days, there was no e-commerce. We didn't have we didn't even have emails. Um, So you had had to have a PR You had a fax machine I was super happy When on my business card I put a fax number there I thought (laughs) I've arrived Yeah (laughs) Ten years later There's an email address And the the fax machine Is in the garbage bin On the back Yeah It's mad isn't it The pace of change It's bizarre Um, But but so What what you required A PR person for Back in those days And and some good Fashion magazines Has moved to A social media expert And an Instagram Photographer and someone that knows how, how, to, how to put both together and, and advertise you online. Mm. So it's just moved from one medium to the other. Yeah. But it sounds like you have been able
0: to adapt. Yes. Um, of course, you, you know, we, we've touched on the fact that you are a family business. Um, how does being a family business change your kind of approach to decision making and how you grow the
1: business day to
0: day and run things?
1: Well, because it's in family, you, you know there's a level of trust. I think that you might not have uh, with with other just employees. Does that mean I don't trust any any of my employees? No, but I think because it's family, you can probably say things that you might that Sam might not normally say to me, or another employee might not normally say to me. But because he's my son, he can get away with a lot more, and vice versa. <laughs> so that's what I probably mean by trust. Right. So you're more you, you play with more open an, an open deck of cards, I'd say. And, and I guess you find that a strength, Sam. Sam
0: yeah. How how how, uh, how honest are you allowed to be with your your? Dear, I think
2: fairly honest. You know, I mean, you, there's obviously a difference of opinion and style and etc. Um, but I think usually those arguments lead to a better final product. Um, whether it's creating or designing new shirts, a new, new line, or ideas for the space up here, um, it's definitely all sort of a work that you know might not always be easy Mm. but i think you we usually get to a a point where we're both pretty happy so
0: did you you always want to be in the family business or how how have you come to to Um, working here
2: yeah since sort of the age of 13 um always sort of again as i said earlier doing little bits and bobs here and there um and then working closely with staff previous who used to run made to measure um sort of really got me quite excited and then um and then yeah and then sort of now six years been full-time work so um, yeah uh was, yeah i'd say i always wanted to do it yeah well, for the last 10-15 years
0: <laughs> and made to measure has been your your kind of main focus for the past few months
2: yeah i think it's a, it's an area where you can have great fun um i think creating things for for a client and an individual product um yeah again you have a you have you do have a house style um but i think being able to create something one-on-one is really quite special
0: um, you, I, I guess you must have, perhaps more than most, actually, clients that are prepared to have some fun and experiment. Do you, do you come up with some quite confident stuff?
2: Yeah, again, as you saw, the bright color corduroys <laughs> and things, we do, some, we, do, we do do some wild suits um, and, <laughs> and, and, and shirts, of course. Um, again, all printed ones. We do offer a small selection of that through Made to Measure as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, again, pretty limitless what we can do. What, what, yeah. I'm just interested
0: to get your take on this. What, what is your kind of dream... Emma head to toe look if you could wear one look and it's a suit and a shirt combo what what would it be
2: Uh, for myself I mean I I always wear navy (laughs) okay so I mean I love a very I love a navy double breasted suit usually again as I said big lapel
1: Sam made a super thick like like you saw before that very wide corduroy brilliant a a bulletproof cord uh, double blazer double breasted blazer Purple. And, and pu- purple, oh. absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Oh, awesome. All right, now that I've got to see. <laughs> but then individually, so you can wear the jacket with jeans, or you can wear the, or you can wear the trousers with a, with a dark blue blazer, or a dark blue coat. That might not be a blazer because that word blazer often puts you back into the old fifties. Gold buttons. Yeah. Uh, but no, Sam has an individual look that that is. I wouldn't say not massively eccentric, but definitely different. Do you find that
0: clients are are I guess becoming more casual. Are you doing more casual shirts? And smart casual is definitely
1: the way of yeah. people are moving. You know, when Goldman Sachs only a few days ago said you don't, you no longer have to wear the suit and tie. Yeah, you know that that was a big stamp on on the city, saying that it, it's smart casual time. It's and so interesting. So what we've been doing for twenty five years is actually the smart casual shirt that can be worn under, because it's not necessarily just the white and blue striped shirt that people have. Uh, always won,
0: and I guess actually that, that when when Goldman Sachs made that announcement, you guys I would have thought would have went yes, that's brilliant <laughs> because it's it's been so interesting for me to gain yeah. the 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 reactions of different brands for the last seven days. You know, some brands that I, I actually I wrote a piece for uh, the Jackal Magazine's website the day uh, that they announced it. And I, I think, you know, it's so easy to be a naysayer about these things and say, oh, they're, they're signaling the death of the the business suit as we know it, and the uh, standards are going to slip. Yeah. But actually, I was I was very refreshed by the way that, that Goldman Sachs sort of packaged up the, the declaration to their yeah. employees, because I think they said, you know, we expect you to, while there is no fixed dress code, we expect you to... Exercise good judgment and understand that, that not casual clothes are not appropriate for every day and yes. for every environment. Yes. And I love that, because yes. for me, that, that was basically them saying, "Don't turn up to a client meeting in jogging bottoms. Yes. Just don't do it. Yes. And I think it's actually more difficult for guys yes. to ad- dress without a, a kind of a tight framework of, yes. of yes. corporate suit and tie, yes.
1: um, especially I, in this country, where, where a lot of people went to a school wearing a uniform which is unique to Europe, really. I mean, it's only really this country where most of Europe, you wear what you want to school. Whereas here, we're uniform-based. So that goes from school uniform to basically a business uniform Mm. by the time you hit 20. No, I think everyone knows things change. You know, 100 years ago, we wore a top hat and a horse and carriage was dropping you off at German Street. Yeah. No more horses, no more carriages, no more top hats. (laughs) Things just simply change. It's so interesting, isn't it? And soon, you'll be dropped off in a driverless car. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, before too long.
0: (laughs) Um, what, what are there any um, other kind of changes on the horizon that you're picking up in terms of, of men's style trends? What, what is there anything that you are working on at the moment in terms of new product or new developments that, that are interesting?
1: Well, the only, you know, Well, it's been going on for a while. No, we've just gone from basically going to a smart, casual world and making it so, so it looks smart but actually feels more casual. It's a bit like, as you pointed out, you, know, you can't wear running shoes to work, but they do feel very comfortable when you walk around in a pair of running shoes. Mm. So it's like a jacket. Do you want the form on this other jacket, or do you want slightly slightly less lining, less structure to it, so it feels a bit more casual as well, but it looks very smart and formal, very smart casual. Mm. So it's, it's trying to make that balance. Like you say, you don't want to wear a pair of Nikes. I'm not picking on Nike. It could be Adidas as well. You don't want a pair of running shoes. To wear, but something is, is comfortable. That's why people wear them. Yeah, it's, it's trying to find that right balance, I think.
0: And I guess that's where the kind of Emmet look comes in as well. Yes. Where you will do a beautifully fitted, tailored, made-to-measure suit. But it's made in Naples. It's super soft. You, you do, from what I've seen today, really interesting things in mixing a very light structure, Sam, yeah. with a heavy, robust cloth. Yeah, yeah, which I think is super interesting. Yeah.
2: Um, I think definitely comfort's a big thing at the moment. Um, yeah, uh, for suiting trousers, I think it, it's that sort of as Rob says, that touch of touch of formal but quite a casual look. Mm. Um, you know, whether it's just a like one of the corduroy jackets, but with a pair of jeans, with a white shirt, still has that slightly formal aspect. Yeah, um, which I think again for a lot of offices, even around German Street. Um, is the way that a lot of people are addressing. Uh, let's let's. I, I
0: guess we're we're, we're sort of um, starting to wrap up a little bit, but I've got a few more questions for you. The the first is wh- what is the kind of. I guess, the, the, the winning formula for the Emmett shirt. What are the things that you like to champion in your shirts and that you go towards, bearing in mind, I guess, that you, you have embraced the smart, casual look earlier than, than perhaps some other German street brands? How do you construct your collars, for example? Or is it important to have quite a soft collar? Or what do you look for? We do,
1: depending on the type of shirt it is, so it's a very casual shirt, like a linen shirt in the summer, let's say. We put a very light lining in, in the collar and then the collar band. I generally fuse, just going to slight details for a second, when mm. it's a formal shirt, I fuse the outside of the collar band rather than the inside. Now, that's not good when you're selling a shirt because when the shirt's all nicely, lovely packaged up, the inside of the collar will look slightly ruffled, where, where most people would fuse it. But if you fuse the outside of the collar band, one, the collar stands up more because you're pushing it in. So it gives that lovely I firmness see. to it. That's why we do that. And doing that, and then we also have collar stays, which most people do and we have several linings. So the formal shirts, we have a very hard lining. Uh, on the smart casual shirts, we have our middle lining. And on the very casual shirts, like the linens, we do the very lightweight lining. Mm. The linens, for example, mm. linen comes from a long plant and from wet countries. All of our linen comes from Normandy in France. That, that linen is then, the raw linen is taken then to Italy, mm. woven into thread, and then woven into material. Linen, however, is quite a starch, stark, hard cloth. So when we get the linen delivered to where the shirts are made, we wash the linen first, then we cut the shirt out, make the shirt, and then we wash the linen shirt again. So to to, to soften up quite considerably that cloth, because linen is scratchy in the beginning. Uh, Right. So that's what we do. So there are different ways of making different shirts, depending on the material um, and then depending on the type of shirt. Formal shirts are made in one place, casual shirts are made somewhere else. So So if you want a shirt to look rough... Like let's say we don't make many, but there might, be a, there might be an indigo denim shirt. They have to be washed in a special way as well. They might be made somewhere else. I see. But
0: it's all about getting that collar to
1: stand on the neck, to yes. have a nice shape to it, yes. and to be comfortable to wear. So a formal, shirt, a formal collar, you want to stand up just in case you wear a tie or no tie. It's still nice when it's standing up. Casual shirt, you don't mind if it just flops down, mm. especially a linen shirt because you want it just to be casual and rough and not get in the way when you're going through those nice warm hills in, in Tuscany. Yeah marvellous ok well then I've got through all this Ooh. quality never relinquish
0: never sacrifice that that's well, that, the key that's to where we are wonderful because you preempted my question because I think the, 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 the thought to wrap up on is you know what, what advice could you give to an artisan that is starting out today in, in, in whether it be menswear or I don't know making furniture or eyewear or whatever it might be
1: whether you're in this country or Italy you know, there's always going to be a cheaper country that can make what you do more cheaply If you want to do something good, uh, you want to do something well, and you want sustainability, I'd say quality. So whether it's what we do in shirting, or whether it's a lovely furniture maker in Italy, or whether it's a lovely car, like a Range Rover made in this country, always shout quality, and do whatever it is you do the best possible way you can do it. That's what I would say. No matter what you do. Stick to quality. Stick to quality. And then one last thought from you, Sam.
0: If uh, a a prospective... Uh, listener stroke Emmett prospective customer comes in tomorrow for a made-to-measure shirt or suit, what what are you going to recommend to him? What what should uh, your customer be getting into at the moment?
2: Um, I think, well, somewhere around the corner. um, I definitely would push for some of the brighter colours that we have on offer. Um, Also, a a huge selection of linen and the printed shirts, which are great. I mean, usually people, when it comes to -to made-to-measure shirts, for instance, um, I would say it is a little bit more classical. Um, Because usually when you want a fitted shirt, it might be for a specific reason or for work. Um, But yeah, some of the um, casual selection that we have on on offer at the moment is really incredible. So that's probably what I'd push for. Um, Cool. Again, same in terms of jacketing. Some really nice linens, uh, super lightweight. Um, Again, light cottons as well. So. Well, uh, there we go. Thank you, Sam.
0: There we are, listeners, straight, straight from the, the experts' mouths. Um, uh, it's, we've, we've got to get into some nice, light, breezy printed linens this summer. Um, guys, thank you for that. Thank I you. I really you. enjoyed chatting. It's great to get a, a bit more of an insight into the journey you've been on and, and the kind of taste that you are pushing forward today. Um, and I, I, I'm glad that we've got to catch up, and I, I wish you the very best for the rest of this year and beyond.
1: Thank you, Alex. No, it's a pleasure. It was all ours. Yeah,
2: thank you very much.
0: That's it from Handcut Radio this week. We'll be back next Wednesday, as per usual. Between now and then, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Handcut Radio, or you can email me on alex at handcutradio.com. We love to hear your thoughts, so please do get involved. If you enjoyed this episode, rate and review the podcast. This is a new project for all of us at Handcut Radio, and we need your help to get it out there. The podcast is produced in collaboration with Birch, a London and New York based creative agency. Check out their work at thinkbirch.com. Our theme music is by Joe Boyd. You can hear more from him at This Is Joe Boyd. Finally, thank you for listening as always, and we'll see you this time next week.